My name is Kathleen Parker, and I have nine years of sobriety as of September 8th of this year. So today we'll be talking about addiction and alcoholism and getting help and working through it during this pandemic. What can you tell me about what it's been like working a program during the pandemic? Yeah, it was really weird um, because when it all happened for me uh, is when, you know, I, I live in Nashville as of right now. I'm trying to make my way back to Alaska, my roots, of course. But um, in the midst of the pandemic, there was a tornado that also came through Nashville, which I was living in the area that got hit. So there was there was that. And then um, the pandemic and, you know, um, it's been really difficult at times um, with emotions being up and down and trying to find trying to find um, a routine around meetings and also you know AA has kind of gone on to zoom you know mm -hmm. um, so I have had to really try to understand and get used to going to meetings on zoom which is really weird but it's been working you know what do you think has been the uh, the most difficult part about doing virtual meetings? The lack of connection. It's so hard. It's it feels like there's a veil in between between me and this group that's happening, and it's I don't know. It's um I I I, I will say that a, a lot of people I know and, and myself I I really miss going to the places that I usually go, mm -hmm. um, you know, having our coffee together and meeting up and all of that. And, but I will definitely say it's, it's just been harder not to see people in, in person, um, for meetings. I know that there are some meetings that are opening back up here and there, which I have gotten to go to, um, which has been really nice. But again, there was social distancing, um, that was taking place. And then, you know, the next week, this was when I was in Nashville, we hear that somebody in that group had COVID and then we decided to not have the meeting anymore. So there's just a lot of, you know, things that keep changing throughout this whole time. And it's just to try to stay safe and have that distance between people is like so important right now. But I still do go to meetings um, throughout the week on Zoom and and it's been really helpful because at the end of the day, like we are seeing each other, we are connecting and it's been, it's been a godsend really. Thank God for Zoom. <laughs> so you mentioned the physical meetings, the in-person meetings during the pandemic that you've been to. What did those look like? Yeah. Um, in-person meetings, I mean, they are pretty much... I mean, the one that we um, we had in Nashville that we decided to open up, it was at a friend's house and he opened up his um, backyard to people and we sat outside. Um, we brought chairs and we either sat on blankets and spaced out certain people that I do hang out with. We maybe sat together. Um, but yeah, it's it was really nice and it was outside and you know there are some meetings even in Anchorage that are um, meeting in person now and that are inside but spaced out. So um, I'm going to go check out some of those as well while I'm here. 
You know, something that I was thinking about as I was writing questions down was how do you think the pandemic and virtual meetings has affected the potential of people joining? There have actually been a lot of newcomers that have come and found us on Zoom. And I just think that's pretty amazing. It's a hard time. I mean, I know people who've had a long, a long time of sobriety and it's been really painful um, during this time with things that are happening for everybody. Um, and, you know, some people have gone out and they've either come back to Zoom meetings or um, there's even been, like I said, new people who have found us during this really difficult time. And, you know, it's just been a really uh, emotionally difficult time for people in general um, with either mental uh, illness or the disease of addiction, you know? Yeah. And I think that it's not hard to find, you know, you can Google anytime, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, like different programs out there. Um, There's so many programs for so many different things for addiction. And I, I feel like there has been a lot more newcomers actually that I've seen. And what's really crazy about that is they, they're from different states even because Zoom meetings are happening. So sometimes we'll get people from Nashville or California, or, you know, I've invited some friends to hop on Nashville ones from Alaska and mm -hmm. New York. And so we really get to see other people's meetings during this time too. But I do feel like there have been a lot of newcomers during this time. That's interesting. It's like, um, it's like expanding the camaraderie into different states, not constantly going to a meeting or different meetings within your own state. Yeah, yes, exactly. And I have a lot of friends from all over, you know, um, the country and I get to visit with them um, and go check out their meetings. And um, just even for myself, I feel that it's it's so nice, though, to have a home group, you know, for myself to like know the people who I'm going to see and to keep those connections during during this time that we can't see each other. You know, something else that I thought of is I think something else that's important to remember is that people may be struggling with addiction, but right now with the pandemic, they're also potentially struggling with isolation and depression and the uncertainty of the times. Yes. Yeah, that's a big one. I mean, there have been times when I have definitely um, isolated a little bit and didn't go to you know, enough meetings or, you know, taking a break or just, and I don't say taking a break, like completely shut it off. Just, you know, not as many meetings a week that I usually go to, um, uncertainty of life, uh, financial insecurity, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, just my own, uh, experience. It's, you know, the, the fear and the, um, the things that really feed the disease of my personal like alcoholism, it's, it's uncomfortable during this time, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that, you know, for people who aren't in the program, um, it's easier to go inward, I think, than seek help. And unless, you know, 
like my personal experience until like I hit bottom, I was able to, you know, ask for help or seek help in some way. Have you learned anything maybe new about your own personal struggle with addiction during the pandemic? Yes, I I have. Um, I've learned to trust and have a little bit more faith during this time. Um, the reality is life is so temporary. Everything is just so temporary in life. And to hold on and to be in this fear, it definitely does not help in any sort of way. So I have really just gone back to what I call basics, you know, of showing up, being a part of, um, connecting with people. I have spiritual uh, friendships, you know, relationships that I, I connect with. And we speak about, you know, our higher power and and really just trusting and also doing the footworks, you know. Uh, sometimes people might have heard this, like faith without works is dead. It's I really have to put in the work to be able to see some sort of outcome for myself. So during this time, I actually have taken a lot of courses. <laughs> I took this Yale, this free Yale course on um, the science of well-being, mm -hmm. completely free. It was awesome. I learned a lot about myself during this time. And I've really gone back to finding my purpose and putting a lot of um, what is important to me and my soul into you know, into my writing. I love to write. I love to write for TV. And so I've been just really pouring everything into that. And I've gone back to a little bit of my acting and the things that really give me joy and, and to add joy into like my schedule every day, even if that's a walk or something that brings me some sort of happiness. So that connecting to myself is something that I have really gained a lot more strength in during this time. You know, one thing that I have learned about addiction is that what is important is that you focus your energy and attention to something healthier than something toxic. And it sounds like you have found replacements for addiction in the form of, say, that, that Yale course. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is probably very similar to a lot of addicts where they're like, okay, instead of the bottle or instead of the needle or a pill, like now I'm into uh, working out or hiking or reading, you know, they, they supplement that addiction with something healthier. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, it's, I mean, when I was a kid, I, I loved, I loved anything that had to do with the arts anything I can throw my creative, you know, mind into. And, you know, it wasn't until later when those things started to go away, you know, growing up in uh, a home that's dysfunctional, a lot of families are, um, and having my history with my family, with uh, my genealogy, if you, if I look back at that and understand like that there's addiction that run on both sides of my family. Okay. And to know that, um, even though I've had all this, this, this knowledge um, and awareness that I've always loved the artistic side of myself, you know, growing up and then ending up finding yourself um, getting into drinking and 
drugging and using and partying and completely avoiding self, I think that we do lose a part of ourselves during that time. And when we get to find ourselves again, you know, I've gotten to really go back to when I was a kid Mm -hmm. and to remember the things that really that spoke to my soul at such an early time. So I do believe that we get these chances to recreate something that's healthier, but also look back into our souls and remember that there is something even more there. Like why, why am I, why am I here? You know, and to put myself into that, there has definitely been some workaholism stuff that I have actually (laughs) been, you know, putting myself into the past five years, Mm -hmm. but I was able to seek outside help for that too, you know, and work on that. But when it comes to, I feel like the things that really fill myself with joy to find those things that really make me happy, I think there's balance to all, to all things, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at this, this question that I may have skipped over about meetings. And I think it's important. And it is that I imagine that the act of going to a meeting and physically getting out of the house or away from certain places or people that might trigger addiction is very helpful to staying sober. So how does how does someone who is used to going to a meeting when they're either as a part of their routine or when they're starting to feel, you know, that that hunger? Right. How are they supposed to function now? Right. So, you know, with with a lot of work that we get to do and just wanted to add the disclosure for my own self um, that, you know, this is just my experience and and in my experience, you know, sobriety, I have found my sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous has helped me personally. Um, this might not be for everybody, but just for myself speaking on on this. I get to do the work on myself and in that there's 12 steps and in that and having, you know, a sponsor that I get to be open with and go to for any sort of feedback and uh, support during difficult times, trying to make the right decisions. I will get to bounce things off of people that I meet on my journey and figure out if it's the right decision to put myself in something that might not be healthy for me. Um, It could even be going home for Christmas. might not be a healthy thing for for some of us or for any sort of holiday, Um, holidays, events. And why would that be? Because families are, families are, families are hard. Families are tricky. Um, there's a lot of trauma that happens and a lot of triggers. And, you know, I, I remember for myself that coming home for the last eight years, you know, for Christmas or going somewhere and seeing my father um, or my mother, I still have triggers. And even though I don't have that trigger to go pick up or drink anymore, it still triggers me emotionally. Mm -hmm. And if somebody is just starting out in this 
program or in, on their sobriety journey and putting themselves in places that could be emotionally difficult, then especially in relationships, you know, um, breakups, all of that. Um, I went through a breakup in, in the first month of my sobriety and I got through it. I think it definitely had to do with a lot of things, but, um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is trying to make sure that you are surrounded by people who support you and for me, I have put myself in painful situations and I have, and I have decided to not put myself in painful situations. Um, it's a learning experience and, and I think it's not so easy just to answer that question, but it's just, it could be triggering. I think to put yourself like in situations going to a wedding, for an example, um, where there's going to be lots of drinking and you might not have your full bearings yet, or you're not completely connected in your program, whatever that program is for you that's working. And, you know, you can, it just takes, it takes a moment, you know, if you're not completely solid in a program or whatever journey you're taking. Um, I don't know if that even answered the question. No, no I, I think, I think it's, um, I think it has to do with what I was about to ask you. And I was wondering if, if you are able to, to look back on something like that breakup you mentioned and draw strength from overcoming that. Mm. Yeah, that was probably the best thing that ever happened in my life. Um, one of the best. And what I, what I mean by that question is not necessarily, I mean, maybe to do with the relationship to a certain extent, but overcoming that trigger, right? Like, okay. so if, yeah. if you, if you broke up with this person mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. your natural response was to go get a bottle, right. but instead of doing that, you overcame it, right. you know, through, through the steps or through the program or through a sponsor. Right. So when something like that happened, um, and the breakup happened for me, uh, there were many times that I didn't want to say, um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to really, uh, take the, this isn't working seriously. So I remember, you know, during those hardships of that first month or I would say three months of sobriety, you know, um, I had, I just remember not getting the answers that I wanted, which was I wanted to be back with this person. So during those really difficult times of not getting what I wanted, right. Um, of that sort of drug of being with somebody, mm -hmm. you know, and then not being with somebody, you know, going to a sponsor finally, like it, it that led me to actually finding a sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I also met people in the rooms that I heard their stories and completely connected with. And I saw something in them that I did not have in myself. And I knew that if they had five years of sobriety and I had only like a month or two or three, five years sounded like a hundred years to me. <laughs> and so 
I would call them. I remember having that trigger one night. I was on the couch and I was like, I'm just going to go smoke weed. I'm just going to go buy some weed and get it over with and um, abandon myself again. And instead, I just decided to pick up the phone and call somebody. And it was this woman and we she had five years and we spoke for a good hour and it completely switched my mind over to a new thing um, about staying so- sober and letting that time pass. Mm-hmm. You know, if we just sit through things, giving it a minute, two minutes, five minutes, an hour speaking to somebody else, just reaching out for help um, has saved my ass every time any sort of thing like this have have come up for me. Even in times when I don't think about drinking anymore or picking up anymore, an emotional, um, really deep emotional things that have happened for me, I will still pick up the phone because I've learned to do that. Mm-hmm. And it saved my ass. If you don't mind me asking, when you were av- avoiding or trying not to get that weed and you called your sponsor, do you remember what she said? She was amazing, first of all, that she would listen to me for so long. But, (laughs) um, you know, she just gave me really gentle advice and, um, you know, certain things that uh, we have literature in meetings and reading the literature that we have has been very supportive in any sort of hard times that I've, I've had. And... So I've gotten to do that. I've, I've also was told to put my keys underneath my bed and your keys underneath your bed. Yeah. So it would remind me in the mornings before I went to work to hit my knees in the morning and pray for the people that I might be hurt by or angry at, or, you know, praying for myself, um, to get through a day, you know, um, just simple things like that. Or, you know, saying one of the prayers that we, that we say, um, really simple things like that, honestly. And her just listening to me, uh, meant so much because I think that, you know, growing up, I wanted to be seen. I wanted to be heard. I felt alone a lot of times. And part of my drinking and using um, was to fill that up for myself. So drugs and alcohol became my best friends. And therefore, when they're gone, I felt alone, alone in my suffering. Um, but once once we have people in our lives who, who listen, who care, it, it, it becomes something that's so much deeper and so spiritual. Getting back to the virtual meetings, again, I, I had a question that we kind of skipped over here, but A friend of mine who hosts online meetings told me about a story about a woman who turned her camera off during one of the virtual meetings, but she kept the audio on, and she increasingly got more and more drunk throughout the meeting. Has anything like that happened with you during this pandemic where you recognize that's happening with somebody else, and if so, what... What do you do in that situation? Do you ignore it or do you call it out or what? You know, um, love and tolerance, you know, and it's, 
I haven't actually had any experiences like that or have seen that. I have seen other things. I have seen um, people who have jumped in our meetings, not invited out of nowhere and have shown really disgusting images and visuals that disrupt the whole meeting and the host has to kick them out. Mm -hmm. Um, But I haven't seen anything else like that. But if I did, you know, and if they were sharing, probably after, because I do host a meeting every Wednesday. um, And if I were to come across that and somebody did a a share while they were drinking, probably after that, I would make sure that they, you know, um, just to have a, just a nice little reminder, hey, just um, please, if they wanted to share again, you know, just to let them know that um, please come back next time. Or if you'd like to stay for the rest of the meeting and, and listen to everybody's shares right now, Mm -hmm. you know, something that's, that's kind, that's, not aggressive and um that comes from love really but not to kick them out or anything like that unless they were completely disrupting the whole meeting and it was not working then i I would lovingly try to ask them if they could take pause um and if they weren't able to i I would have to ask them to leave and if they weren't able to we might have to kick them off i mean that would be like the worst thing like worst circumstances and when you say these these shares were inappropriate. What does that mean? You said they were showing images. Oh, so we had some hackers. That's really what they were. I don't know how. Well, there are some um, Zoom uh, meeting information out there on the web. So <laughs> honestly, I I have a feeling it's kids who had parents in the program that just wanted to mess around and maybe one day they're going to join us. But um, for (laughs) now, they were just messing around. And uh, one of the images was really grotesque and has just, you know, there were like sexual um, porn things that were happening, like flash of that went up on, on our full screens, everybody's screens. And then the next thing was somebody that was hanging. It was oh, just geez. really disruptive and and traumatic, yeah. to be honest with you, and very fast. And we just wanted to make sure that everybody in the meeting was okay after that. And, you know, so there's a lot more security measures now to get into these meetings. Thank God, you know. That sounds like a a unique situation to the virtual meetings, right? Because in... A physical meeting, I mean, these these hackers or these these children, if that's who they were, they wouldn't <laughs> be able to show up to a meeting. I guess they could show up to a meeting with like, you know, porno pictures, but it's it it just wouldn't have the same effect as if as showing up to a virtual Zoom meeting and subjecting everybody to look at those those photos or images. Um you know, they're, they're like in a captive state. Right. Um, I mean, everyone is welcome just as long as everybody's feeling safe in the meetings. That's, that's the most important part, you know? Mm-hmm. Would you mind talking a little bit about what your life was like before you got sober? Sure. Um, 
I'll take you back there for sure. Um, Yeah. So, you know, like just growing up, um, you know, I was a little bit of a lone wolf, like I had mentioned, and just kind of doing my own thing. Um, You know, everything looked really nice on the outside. Um, But my family was very dysfunctional and and that's not an uncommon thing by any means but i would tend to go to my room for hours and hours and hours and isolate at an early age and do a bunch of art things i guess Mm -hmm. and a lot of daydreaming a lot of fantasizing and romanticizing um came early for me and um at a at a young age too you know there was like a lack of control and i as the older sister i have a younger brother and then i'm the oldest and you know i wanted to control things outside of myself i couldn't control my my family i couldn't control the fighting i couldn't control the anything around me that felt uncomfortable um for me to experience and that led to an early age of risk taking. Um, I, I had these ideas that I could get away with things or, um, like I remember watching the wizard of Oz once (laughs) (laughs) and was like, I think I could probably jump off the balcony of my house and completely be fine if I landed on my feet. And How old were you? I, I probably was like nine years old. Okay. And maybe eight or nine or something. And I remember going and kind of like looking over the balcony. I was like, okay. And I kind of put, like put myself off. And I, I was hanging off just with my hands and looking down and realizing I got myself into a really bad situation. Now I can't get my, myself out of this situation. And there's only one way out. So I just started yelling, mom. And, um, I could see her, but she couldn't see me because there's only half of my face like on the other side of the balcony. Yeah. Trying to get myself up and I couldn't. And my mom just was on the phone like, I could hear her, but I don't know where she is. And she finally saw me and she helped me up. She's like, what were you thinking? And I was like, I just thought I could fly like one of those monkeys from the Wizard of Oz. (laughs) What was her response? She was like, oh my gosh, don't ever do that again. You know, Um, what were you thinking? And I thought, I thought I could easily jump down. It wasn't that far. It didn't, it didn't seem that far to me, but you know, putting yourself in, in a situation is like, oh shit, actually, this is not good. Yeah. So there's a lot of those things that happened to me, um, before I even took a drink, you know, or a drug in my life. Um, and then going to, um, you know, going through there's elementary and then middle school, my dad was a teacher and, I remember going to a bigger school during that time, um, just for like one class that I had. And, and I didn't go to public school, like a big public school um, at the time. Uh, so going to one class at a public school felt really cool and different and fun and, and exciting. And those emotions came up for me. And um, I saw some people that looked mysterious, like the Gothics. And I was like, yes, they look really cool and mysterious. I want to be their friends. <laughs> and yeah. I remember one day I decided to take a little tiny 
Tupperware, like literally like an inch of whiskey that I took from my dad's cabinet or whatever, um, the alcohol cabinet. And I just poured a little bit in this little container and I took it to school and I showed these guys like what I had. And I just thought that I had something cool to make me cool so I can fit in with people. So it went from like really isolating to I wanted to be part of something that was exciting and risky and possibly maybe not the best scenario for friendships, you know? Mm -hmm. What made you... What made you think that bringing that alcohol to school would make you cool? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think it was the thing that my, you know, my my parents always would have these parties at the house, and my dad was like the margarita guy. He he'd make the margaritas, and I'd always ask if I can have a little sip. Um, but I knew it wasn't for children. I, I, I knew that these drinks were for adults and I wanted to always be older. You know, I wanted to be older since I was a kid, you know, mm -hmm. um, I wanted to fit in with the adults or anybody older, older than myself. So when it came to having some sort of like tactic, I went to alcohol. I thought, oh, well, this is a way for me to get in with people who seem like maybe they would want to use something like this. Maybe that's my way of connecting with other people that might be like me. And maybe I was drawn to the people that were like me. I, I feel like I definitely was. I mean, I know now looking back that there was a lot of addicts and alcoholics I was friends with back in the day. We all were, I can't really say that they are, but till this day, like I know people who have, sh have shown up, you know, in the same rooms and I'm like, oh, that makes sense, you know? So I, I don't know if that answers that question or not, but that's just how I feel about that. Um, yeah. You brought up your parents a number of times. Have you had to work through any anger toward them? Absolutely. Um, you know, resentments is part of life, you know, I think. And um, I didn't have any tools growing up. You know, there was no tools. There was no roadmap. And I don't know if it was because, I don't know, I was born in the 80s and that just wasn't the thing that parents had a roadmap to or that they cared about family therapy for everybody or anything like that. But, you know, there was a divorce that happened um, at a really vulnerable time in my life. And I was, you know, between 15, 16. Um, always very intuitive, always kind of knew things that I didn't need to know. And I, I just grew up a little faster, I feel like, than, than I needed to. Um, so gratefully, there are so many programs out there in the world. And I've gotten to go to trauma programs and work on myself. I never went to rehab. Um, but I did at five years of sobriety decide to go work on myself. And I went to this amazing place called Onsite that's outside of Nashville. And it's a great trauma place to, it's like seven days. And I just went out there for seven days and had the most amazing experience. It was really like that next chapter of my sobriety, you know, mm -hmm. deepening my emotional sobriety, not just the physical, you know, part. So, um, yeah, I've, I've gotten to 
reach out to other programs as well. Um, there are so many out there that that help. I always say that I probably belonged in Al-Anon before I ever got to AA with wanting to control things in my life <laughs> and not being able to, um, which led me to not being in control and finally having that first drink. And, you know, it felt like I was free. Finally, I didn't have to control anything anymore. So yeah, there, there, there's been, and, and it will be a, a long time. It will be a life journey of understanding and having some sort of restoration with uh, family, you know, for, for me. What made you eventually want to get sober? Yeah, I think that there, it was a long time coming. You know, I had my first big drink when I was, I think, 15 years old. Um, I was I went out to Girdwood for New Year's Eve, of course, and <laughs> big bonfire outside, um, as we do, and, and kegger and all of that. I got my first red cup, and it was off to the races after that. It was exciting, and, and I think from ages, you know, 15, 16, all the way up to 28 when I decided to get sober, you know, I, I had stopped drinking for three years in my 20s and I decided to just fully rely on marijuana. I did what you call the marijuana maintenance program. <laughs> Is that what they call it? I mean, that's what they say, but do I believe it works? Absolutely not. Um, not for me, you know. Um, a drug is a drug is a drug. And I'm sorry, but <laughs> I smoked morning, noon, and night. And I had to have weed before I went to bed or else it would be chaos. I would wait for hours until I could find the dealer because at that time, you know, marijuana stores weren't available unless you had a card like in California. And, mm -hmm. and I got sober in California. I was living in California and, um, I just decided that with the way that alcohol responded in my body and how it affected me, which I was a blackout drunk. Um, I was, I got very angry when I would drink and it was just pure chaos. And I just thought, okay, well, if I can't drink, and it was always because I was with somebody in a relationship where they were pretty much like, well, you gotta stop drinking if we're gonna keep continuing dating. So that was like a big part of my God at that time, you know, relationships I was in had a lot to do with what I did. And that's what I learned growing up, you know, and going back to that first time when I stopped drinking for three years and just smoked weed for three years and then going through a breakup and then meeting the guy who I thought was going to be the one, you know, um, we dated for a year and he was a big wino and he loved wine. And I, I loved to be the designated driver and only smoke weed. And I, I said I was sober, even though I smoked weed, because at the time I didn't even know that smoking marijuana, um, was a non-sober thing mm. <laughs> in my mind. Um, and I just, I just, there was a point when I was in this relationship where I felt so disconnected to the person I was with because of their drinking of wine. And I felt outside again, going back to the isolation feeling that not part of in some way that connection, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I decided to pick up, um, that, 
bottle of wine and um, it was like glasses of wine at first and then it became bottles of wine and then it became let's just go to the bar and go behind the bar and I'll pour every kind of liquor in one cup and drink the whole thing. That's the kind of alcoholic I was in the end. And that took me from one summer to the next summer to be a fall down, angry alcoholic again, and to really wake up to feeling like, who the F am I? Mm -hmm. Who have I become? And, and I don't even know who I am. And what do I do? you know, to get better. And I remember calling my mom um, after my last drink, which was like literally two goblets of wine. And I don't know why, but that put me over the edge. And I ended up, um, I ended up the next morning waking up and knowing that something terribly wrong had happened. I know that there was a big fight with the boyfriend, with his cousins who were like, best people ever. And I just woke up feeling like I felt, I felt ashamed, you know, and I didn't know what to do. And something I always did, um, back in that time would call my mom, mom, what do I do? And she somehow says, which I remember, she does not remember this, but she said to me, just sit down in front of them and tell them that, you know, you're going to go get help. And I just asked her, well, how am I going to go get help? Like where, how? And she said, well, you know, you know, there's Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and I thought, okay. And I knew somebody at the time that was in the program. So I thought, you know, I'll reach out to them and hit some meetings. And, and I did the first week I, I, I hit a meeting and I remember going to a meeting and I just thought, wow, like, I saw all these amazing people there. They were laughing. There were young people. It was California. It was just vibrant. Mm -hmm. And I just felt so low at the time and seeing all these people smiling. And I just knew that they had something that I wanted. So um, that was like my first in introduction for my personal experience um, into, into that next step. But I have to be honest about the reason why. The reason why I decided was because I was losing this relationship. We had gone through that breakup. In my mind, I felt like I had to get him back. And the only way that I could was to stay sober. So there was a lot of my ego, pride involved in the whole in the whole decision making, you know, at first. Mm -hmm. But the more and more I was staying sober, the more and more I was my self-esteem was growing because I was not going backwards. Um, I was sitting through these huge, emotional, painful situations and getting better. And he and I started to date again and we got back together again. And I, I got better. He saw me take my first year cake at a meeting and he cried and I kept getting better. And then I realized, well, actually this relationship isn't even good for me. And for the first time in my life, I chose like a, a year and a half of sobriety to let something go that didn't have to let me go for the first time. And that was really the most profound pivot that I had in my life. That moment of I'm going to choose me and life rather than going backwards to have a drink to be connected to this person again. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that or do you feel like by leaving him, you, because he was still drinking, he was still drinking wine. Do you feel like you were kind of also 
leaving the alcohol. Like he was a almost a manifestation of the alcohol. Absolutely. Um, but I, I, I can't even blame that at all. I, I really have to go back to my history. And if I look at my history, and I'm grateful that I get to be awake to do that today, um, it's very clear for me to see what the issue was there. And as much as I would like to say it was like this person and manifesting and um, the alcohol that was around him or whatever, um, it was really about me trying to people please and me feeling accepted. And that goes, that goes to my history. Like I can't blame alcohol. I can't blame people for anything that that I've chosen to do. It, it's really because of these things I get to look at now and rework in my life. Um, why am I people pleasing? What do I, who, who do I really need to validate, you know? Mm -hmm. um, or who do I really need to, uh, validation from? Um, and who do I really need acceptance from and why? <laughs> so really it was a godsend <laughs> for all of that too bring me to this place of, okay, maybe that relationship wasn't great. And it was like a great time for me to live in my own place and surround myself with other sober people. But it was also really difficult at the time, I will say, because he was part of this theater company that I was part of. And I did a lot of acting in California and Los Angeles. And I, that was my family. And next thing you know, I felt like it was not my family. And, and that's not, that wasn't even true. Um, that was my own, my own mind, my own ideas, uh, my own belief system that all of a sudden I got sober and I wasn't, I wasn't welcomed to the theater anymore, you know? And that goes back to like what the disease really is, which is just fear-based, you know? Mm-hmm. How often do you make decisions for yourself? You mentioned earlier that with, you know, that boyfriend, it was, it was something that you, you left on your own volition that you were, that you were proud of. So how often now do you make decisions for yourself? Ones that you're proud of yourself are making. Every day I have choices and I'm so grateful that I get to make choices every day that are better for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm making them every day. Um, I have a calendar of things I do that I need to do for myself every day. If that is going for a walk instead of getting caught up in Netflix, um, <laughs> <laughs> if that is going to a yoga class um, for some sort of grounding, if that's meditation, if that's going to a meeting, um, if that's to work on my resume to get myself closer. It's like what I said earlier, faith without works is dead. So if I make the right choices and I still make choices that are painful, um, which I also said earlier, it's life is temporary. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I want to experience life. And sometimes I know when something's not the best thing for me. And sometimes I don't know what's the best thing for me. And that's where I need to literally let go and let God, whatever that means, that's in some sort of serenity and love 
that the world is going to keep going. Everything is going to be okay, no matter what happens um, with this choice I make. It could be the right or wrong decision. I mean, I don't really believe in right or wrong. It's more like I make this decision and it's going to lead me to the next best thing I need to do for myself. And I'm going to learn something. I always do. So what would you say to someone currently struggling with their sobriety right now? What I would say is you are not alone and sobriety is a journey and it is not for the weak. <laughs> we are probably some of the most strongest people out there and um, and there are places to go for support. There are people out there just like you who have gone through the same things or or harder and you can Google different programs in your location. You can reach out to me anytime on Instagram, Facebook. Um, yeah, I, I would just say you're not alone and and we are here whenever you need um what i mean by we is people who are sober people who are on the same path um we are here whenever you are ready for more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism go to www.patreon.com crude magazine thanks to trina duber Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives for their support at the company man level. This conversation was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.